Amen, amen, amen. Hey, I tell you what, we never get tired of celebrating life change around here. And I tell you another thing, we don't get tired of celebrating the men and women who gave us the ability to to worship freely and celebrate life change freely. So if you are a vet, if you are an active Uh, If you're in the reserves or if you're retired, a part of our military, would you please stand to your feet so that we can clap and celebrate you? Amen, amen. Thank you here in San Pablo and Bay Meadows and all our locations. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, you guys can take a seat. I I know y'all don't like being the center of attention anyway, so we'll let you... Sit back down. Thank you so much. We are a movement for all people across all our locations, which means this. We, we don't really care who you voted for on Tuesday, but you do need to know this. Without the men and women that just stood at all our locations, we're not voting. So thank you all so much for uh, standing up for us and providing us freedom. Thank you. <clears throat> so last week, Pastor Britt taught us uh, about what does it look like to live life inside the kingdom of heaven. And this week, uh, we're going to talk about the, the outside. If there's an inside of the kingdom, by default, there's an outside of the kingdom. And what we're going to look at for most of today is the reality of hell. Now, don't like rush out of here. This isn't going to be a hellfire and brimstone sermon. This is going to be about grace. But we have to look at the reality of hell. And as I prepared to talk about eternity, uh, I began to think about the obituaries, which is a little bit morbid, I know. But obituaries really are a great... A cultural test of what, what we view as eternity. I mean, if you look at the obituaries, one of the things I've noticed greatly is that we have greatly ignored uh, the scriptural teaching of heaven and hell. I mean, if you look at it, our view of heaven is at best misguided. It's kind of this hedonistic view that is uh, heaven is just an elongated experience of things that make us happy. Like it's an eternity playing golf or finding seashells or finding shark's tooth, which that sounds more like hell to me, um, or, or it's an eternal spa day. It's just misguided view. And our view of hell is usually totally neglected. In fact, I've never read the obituaries and saw this poor son of a gun is burning in hell. Come join us for fried chicken after we spit on his grave. I've never seen that obituary. However, that would be awesome. I would hang it on my wall or something. In fact, I think the only place we ever think about hell being a reality is when we're in traffic and we begin to suggest that the car in front of us just go there. So I think we have ultimately kind of ignored and neglected the reality of hell and and kind of been misguided in the reality of heaven. Culturally, we've seen this decrease in the belief in God and an increase in a belief in an afterlife, which is a very interesting phenomenon that just leads to this non-biblical view of eternity. And I'm going to say this, our ability to understand hell is rooted in our understanding of the kingdom of heaven. And Pastor Britt did an amazing job uh, last week teaching us about the kingdom of heaven. In fact, if you remember, um, he started out and he taught us through, I just call this the EKG of eternity. Of eternity. Deep. And so um, Pastor Britt taught us about this. And let me just kind of recap it. I I can't teach his sermon. um, One, because I just, he said a lot of really good things and I I don't even know how to say them. Uh, Two, I don't have time to preach his and preach mine. So let me just give you um, the recap. Pastor Britt taught us that last week uh, that God and man were dwelling together in the Garden of Eden. And then there's this story towards Jesus of how sin enters and fractures uh, this kingdom uh, between God and man. And there's this high point with the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then we are on our way to uh, eternity where there is a new heaven. There's this kingdom where God and man live together forever in eternity. I'm a Cliff Notes guy, so let me show you the Cliff Notes of this. This is called um, the gospel in the air. It's the same concept, the same narrative, but Um, There was creation, and in creation, God created the heavens and the earth, and man and God dwelt together. There was no sin. There was the shalom of God. It was perfect. It was how God intended it. Uh, Shortly after, though, we have the fall, and the fall is where Satan and sin enter into the narrative. The, The relationship between God and man is fractured. The relationship between the kingdom of heaven and earth is torn, and, and sin begins to just kind of wreak 
havoc in what happens in the third chapter, and this is kind of the chapter of this narrative that we are currently living in, is the chapter of redemption, that Christ comes, that Christ uh, lives a perfect life, he dies on the cross, and he begins to not only offer salvation to anyone who would surrender uh, to him as Lord and Savior, but he also begins to redeem um, the fallen earth, the fallen creation. Um, Christ literally goes around and begins to heal people, and he is redeeming creation, and ultimately we are heading towards consummation. We are heading towards this end, this finality that actually looks more like the creation where heaven and earth are in relationship, and God is dwelling with his people. It's called the gospel in the air. And what we're going to spend a lot of our time today talking about is this idea of consummation. Uh, And at the end, in the end time, in the finality, what does it look like? And I believe that heaven and hell are the finality of the kingdom narrative. That the kingdom of heaven will be established as a new Jerusalem. And where there is an inside of the kingdom, there will be an outside of the kingdom. Revelation chapter 21 is a text that we're going to study today. It starts like this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. A new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Sounds a lot like the Garden of Eden. Sounds a lot like the way God created and intended things to be. It goes on, verse 4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, uh, nor pain anymore. And the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The kingdom of God is beautiful. This place, this new Jerusalem, this, this place we call heaven is beautiful. It's, it's, it's relationship with the King Jesus with no pain and no tears. Yet verse 8 uh, reminds us that where there's an inside of the kingdom, there's an outside. Verse 8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The kingdom of heaven is good and it is beautiful. And to be inside of it is to be inside of the kingdom with the king forever. But outside of it, there is a place of rubble and destruction and what the Bible describes as a lake of fire. There's this place outside that just is just this mental image. It's this real place. Just begin to let your hearts and minds think about this place outside of the city that is full of destruction. And it's for the sorcerers, which all of us are like, good, I'm not Harry Potter. And it's for the murderers, which most of us at this church have never murdered anybody. I'm not convinced somebody hasn't. Um, And and liars, and whoa, we all were kids. And we begin to realize that this place outside of the city is real. And this place outside of the city is something we have to pay attention to. The rest of chapter 21 goes on to talk about this new city, this new Jerusalem. It begins to describe its beauty. And uh, you can read it for yourself later today, but it describes the beauty of this city. In verse 22, it says, And I, this is John writing, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And the gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. This kingdom of heaven, the gates are never shut. They didn't even need to shut, they didn't need to shut the city gates because of the protection that you have when God dwells amongst you. And there's another but in verse 27. But nothing unclean will enter into it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Heaven is this beautiful kingdom where the gates are open, that God is the protector of this kingdom, but the unclean do not get in. I would go a step further and say this, the unclean don't even want to come in. They hate God so much. They hate his city so much. They can never be talked out of their rebellion. 
This is the picture of eternity. There is a beautiful city of heaven where God and man dwell together and there is a hell outside of it, full of destruction and full of those through all of eternity will hate God. There's one more time, chapter 22, verse 14. But blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right of the tree of life and that they may enter the gates the city by the gates. Let me, let me just tell you what's going on here. Over and over throughout scripture, um, it talks about our sin as being just this, um, this detestable garment, this filthy rags that even our, our best actions is but filthy rags. And what Paul tells us uh, throughout the New Testament, what Jesus declares is that he has come to put on us a righteous robe, to clothe us in his righteousness, that what Christ did on the cross was take our detestable, uh, sin-stained clothes clothes and took them to the cross and paid the price of death for them. And in exchange, he, he gave his life on the cross so that he would die and be resurrected and give us his cloak of righteousness. So what it's saying here is blessed are those who have surrendered their sin and surrendered their kingdoms of self and put on the robes, the righteous robes of Christ for they can come into the city of gates, not because of anything that you or I have done, but because what Christ has done on the cross. Verse 15, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves false practices. Jesus is the truth and everything else is a falsehood. Three times in these two chapters, we see this description of the reality of there being an outside of the city. Three times we see this reality of the beauty of heaven, of being inside, and three times the reality of the destruction that is outside. Outside the city is those who love falsehood and hate Jesus. They love the kingdom of self and they hate the kingdom of heaven. It's here in Revelation 21 and 22 that we see the reality of heaven and the reality of hell. Most of today, we're going to focus our energy on the reality of hell, but I need to just set the table real quick for us of a few things that are true about heaven so that we understand the truth about hell. Now, real quick, here they are. Number one, heaven is a real place. It is a city. It is not just a cloud in which we sit around wearing diapers, playing small harps, listening to Morgan Freeman read the dictionary. It is a real place. It is a physical place with physical bodies. It is probably much more uh, like to be pictured like a redeemed uh, earth than it is about this cloud in the sky. The second thing about heaven is that heaven is all about communion with God. It is the restoration of the Garden of Eden in which mankind walked with God. The fulfillment of heaven is the presence of God himself. The third thing, heaven is a place of continual joy. It is not a boring church service. It is, heaven is where we walk with God, where we work alongside of God, uh, where we live with God, and where we worship God every single day, embracing his joy and glory. And the fourth thing about heaven, it's real, it's about communion with God, it's continual joy, and fourth, heaven is a place free from sin and its consequences. There's no death, there's no disease, there's no decay. Isaiah paints this beautiful picture of heaven that I think is worth putting on the forefront of our mind as we begin to talk about outside of the kingdom. Here's the inside of the kingdom. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. For half of eternity, the Southern Baptist is going to be like, what do I do with this? I'm so, and I can only say that because I, I are one. Like I grew up, I didn't drink IBC root beer because it was in a beer bottle and I didn't want to be a heathen. But now I am eagerly anticipating the cab that I'm going to get in heaven to just drink, all right? I don't know if white wine makes it, probably not, but there is a Cabernet Sauvignon. I'm, I'm going to sniff it and rip it around. Go, That's good stuff, Jesus. And there's a bunch of Baptists. It's going to take you half of eternity to catch up, but it's going to be awesome. And he will swallow up this mountain, the covering that is cast over all his people, the veil that is spread over all the nations. And he will swallow up death forever. 
And the Lord God will wipe away tears from the faces. I love that picture. It doesn't say that God's gonna send his angels to wipe our tears, but as we come walking into the city of heaven, that God himself will be wiping away the tears going, there's no room for tears here. Come in, my son, come in, my daughter. The feast has been prepared. And the reproach of his people, he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. I want on the forefront of our minds to think about heaven as this place in which God and man enjoy each other's presence and feast together where we worship the King of Kings, where there is no room for tears or pain or disease. It's this beautiful, beautiful place inside the kingdom. But the reality is, is that we cannot talk about the kingdom of heaven and ignore what's outside. We want to believe in heaven and ignore hell. Here's four things about hell that we have to wrestle with today. First of all is this, hell is real. Like we, we tend as believers to wanna to believe in the reality of heaven because it sounds good, but try to ignore hell. And the Bible just doesn't give us that option. I mean, it, we're only two chapters into the book of Genesis. The first book in the Bible, we're two chapters in and the word death shows up. Let's just be honest, the way we even talk about death is almost a way in which we try to ignore the reality of eternity. We, we say things like fell asleep or passed away. We, we try, it's just, it is a natural part of life. Death is not a natural part of life. Death is, a, is the curse of sin. And sin is not the natural intention for us, but we were to walk hand in hand with our creator. And yet sin completely destroyed that fabric. Death is not a natural cause. It is a curse of sin. Here's how Genesis says it. But the, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. From the very beginning, sin has had consequences. Death is a consequence of sin. Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, anytime death uh, comes onto the, onto the picture, I mean, it's followed by judgment and final, a final destination. New Testament says it is, is given for man to die but once, once and then to be judged. So throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a clear picture of there's only two destinations that we go to after judgment. <clears throat> Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, this is in the Old Testament. It says, and many of those who fell asleep in the dust, that's Old Testament for died. And many of those who, who fell asleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, that's heaven, and some to shame and everlasting content, that's hell. Jesus affirms this teaching of heaven and hell being the, the final destinations. He says it like this in Matthew 8. And I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That Jesus affirms heaven and hell. And he even goes on to say that religion can't get you into heaven. Only surrendering to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross can get you in. And by the grace of God, he says, and many will come from the east and the west. All right, that's us. We got to the table. We got to the kingdom because Christ paid the way. He, he paid with his blood and clothed us with his righteousness that we could walk into the gates. In fact, Jesus loves us so much that he talked about hell and punishment a lot. Like 13% of the sayings of Jesus that we have recorded in the Bible are about hell and punishment. Nearly half of the parables that Jesus taught are about hell and punishment. He loved us enough to talk about its reality. The word uh, that Jesus used over and over is the word Gehenna. Let's say that here, Bay Meadows, Sanctuary, everybody. one, two, three. Gehenna. Good job. You guys are bilingual now. Awesome. Gehenna uh, was a physical location. You could like map quest it back in the day. And it was this uh, literal garbage dump that was outside of the city of Jerusalem. And it had a lot. Uh, uh, it was well known. It was, it was a well known area. In fact, it was well known because in the Old Testament, um, they called it the Valley of Hinnom. And the Valley of Hinnom um, was well known before it became this garbage dump. It was, um, it was well known as a place that Israel would go to cheat on God with foreign gods. It was outside of the city of the walls of Jerusalem. And it was known primarily for two reasons. One is that it was a place of idolatry. I mean, it was kind of like a cheap hotel on the outskirts of town that Israel would leave and have an affair on God with the, with the cheap idols of the day. It was also known as a place of injustice. 
Many of the idols that Israel would go and worship out there required all kind of detestable things, one of them being child sacrifice. And so Israel would literally leave the protection of the city of Jerusalem and walk out to the valley of Hinnom and there would begin to um, have this idolatrous affair on their God and begin to practice injustice. So you fast forward to the day of Jesus, it it became this garbage dump. There was still idolatrous worship going on there, still injustices happening all the time, but it had become this garbage dump. It had become the place where the city of Jerusalem took their their trash and they heaped it and they would light it on fire to try to burn and consume the trash. It was a place where they would literally take the criminal bodies and instead of burying them, um, they would just take them out to Gehenna and just throw them out and let their bodies decay. So it was this place of idolatrous worship, injustice. It was a place of decaying bodies. It was a place of fire-consuming trash. You can imagine when Jesus said it, people were like, oh, that's not good. Now, we can't think about Gehenna in the same way that that Jerusalem does because we don't actually literally have it. Very few of us have ever even been to a garbage dump, period. And what Jesus is saying is, is not to be lost on us today. There's a symbolism that still is important to us. You see, Gehenna declared three things that are still true today. The first one is this. Idols are cruel. Idols are cruel, and they lead to a cruel hell. The the cruelty of Gehenna was in the fact that it was simply just a cheap affair with idols who could not deliver. God was a loving husband to his bride. His love for Israel did not make Gehenna cruel. Israel's rebellion made it cruel. The rebellious heart of Israel cheating on their heavenly father, cheating on their God is what made it, made it cruel. Mine and your neglect of a loving God is what makes hell cruel. Not the fact that God is loving. God is not to blame for the cruelty of hell. God is not the cause of idolatry nor the cause of its consequences. God is not the cause of hell. God is the cure for hell. It would be like walking up to a sick person, handing them medicine that would cure their illness, and they look at the medicine and begin to blame the medicine for their sickness. The medicine is not the cause of their sickness. The medicine is the cure for their sickness. It is absolutely just mind-boggling that we would look at a loving Heavenly Father and blame Him for the cruelty of hell when in fact He is the only cure for its pain. The second thing that the Gehenna reminds us of, and this one's tough, the fires of Gehenna were lit by human hands. Hell is ultimately the rebellion being handed over to what the rebellion has created. It's the rebellion. It's it's ultimately God going, you created, it's yours. You and I are the cause of the pains of hell. Not God. We light the fires of hell. Now, I understand that it's not a bumper sticker that we're going to be able to make and sell. No one's buying that one. But it's the true. God did not light the fires of a Gehenna. God did not light the fires of hell. We did. The third thing that Gehenna teaches us is this, is that Gehenna, like hell, is outside of the city. Jerusalem um, translates, it means the shalom of God or the peace of God, the wholeness of God. The city's name was literally like if you were in the presence of God, you were in the wholeness of God. And Gehenna was outside of the peace of God. It was literally outside of the walls of Jerusalem. It was outside of God's provision and protection. Jesus is declaring that hell is outside of the shalom of God. That hell is outside of the kingdom of heaven. That hell is void of the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. The second thing that's true about hell that we have to wrestle with is this. The hell's eternal. Hell is a really, 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 really long time. Like forever. There are so many false teachings on hell. I don't even, as I began to study this week, what I realized is I was, I was going to be unable to get to them all. And in fact, every week as we stand and we teach, we are really unable to get to everything that the whole canon has to teach. It's part of the reason why, like once a month, I do this thing called Theology on Tap. Uh, a friend of mine uh, owns really good beer stop. 
out at Jack's Beach next to Mellow Mushroom. And once a month, we just kind of gather. And uh, for people who drink beer, you have a beer and talk about the Bible. For people who don't drink beer, you have a water and you talk about the Bible. The, the thing that holds us all in common is the Bible. And so we talk about it. And so like tomorrow night, I've got so much stuff. I'm gonna, we're just gonna do a theology on tap tomorrow night to talk about the other things that I can't talk about. But I do want to attack some of them, if that's all right with you. Here are some of the lies. One is annihilationism. There is a lie out there that says someone goes to hell and once the sin is consumed, uh, the person ceases to exist. Like they go into this eternal coma. Like you have like a report card that says how bad you did. Um, You go to hell for that long and then you enter into a coma. Another uh, teaching that is a lie is um, purgatory. Purgatory says this, it's kind of like you go, to, you go and when you're judged, you get a progress report and it says you're, you did all right, you did a little bit more good than bad and so um, you just need to go uh, and pay for your pain. Uh, you need to have some pain and some punishment and once you're done with the penance, that then you get your full report card and then you get to go to heaven. Another one is this, universalism. This is the one that says that all sin is forgiven. There's a popular book that came out a few years ago by Rob Bell called Love Wins. And ultimately it says this, that, that all sin is ultimately forgiven and everybody gets into heaven. The problem is this. Scripture does not teach any of this. Scripture does not teach annihilationism. Scripture does not teach a, a, a place of purgatory. Scripture does not teach universalism. In fact, Jesus said it this way. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The constant consumption of sin and sinner in hell is never quenched. It's a place of eternity. Hell has no ending There is no such thing as purgatory or annihilation of sin, but the eternal consumption of the sinner. Now, I don't say this to beat a drum of a hellfire and brimstone. I say this to say this is a real issue that we have to wrestle with. If heaven is forever, then hell is forever. They are both eternal. The third thing is this. Hell is not underground, but it is active all around. The prevailing caricature of hell that most of us kind of grew up with is that hell is an underground torture chamber that's locked from the outside and Satan's inside with a tight red suit on with a pitchfork ruling over all of it from the inside. Like it's this underground kind of cave, this torture chamber. And as much as the caricature is a very, very poor view of the reality of hell, I think it's rooted in this um, poor view of heaven and earth. Here's what I mean. I got some images and pictures over here uh, for us to work through. But, but here's the earth, uh, and, and we're going to talk about the earth, and we've got several pictures. And this is always, this little blue thing is always going to remind us of the earth. Our tendency as we begin to read the Bible is this egocentric view where we think the scriptures were written about us. They are not. The scripture is written about King Jesus. The declaration of the king and the kingdom, and we are being invited into it. And so we should have learned from Galileo, but we really think uh, this, we have this egocentric view of the Bible that says it's all about the earth. And so in doing this, we now have to create these destinations. Like there's one day where we're going to die, we're going to go to heaven or hell. And so we create heaven and hell, and they kind of get out here and we separate them. There's earth, there's heaven, and there's hell. And then there's one day where we go to judgment. And we, if we get the question right, then we either go up to heaven or we go down to hell. This is the way that most of us think about heaven and hell. This is a great, it's really simple. It's, it's a philosophical kind of construct that makes it easy to tell our, our children about heaven and hell. The problem is this, is that there's really two problems. One is that geographically, we have to now, um, we have to figure out where heaven and hell actually are. So it's easy. We say that heaven is in the heavens somewhere and it's probably like way past Pluto and we don't have a a good enough telescope to find it, but it's up there somewhere, right? And then hell, it's down there. But the problem is, is that we got smart enough to realize that down there means that hell, oh, it has to be an internal, a a torture chamber inside the earth. So instead of having this, this geographically, we developed this problem where heaven's up there somewhere and hell is this underground torture chamber. There's also a biblical issue here. 
You see, Revelation chapter 21 and, and the whole story of, of the kingdom of heaven tells us that um, the earth is not to be thrown away at the end. In fact, the way we look at this, it's almost like, hey, I'm just trying to get the hell out of earth. I'm, I'm saying that literally. You thought I just cussed. Um, I'm just, we're trying to get the hell out of earth, and then we're trying to leave earth. And, and in this view, we're trying to leave earth behind. But the biblical view says that heaven and earth, there's a new heaven and a new earth. And, and, and we've got it all kind of messed up. So we're going to get rid of this, and let's look at the way that we should look at heaven and earth. Remember the, the gospel in the air story. Um, here's the creation. God created heaven and earth for an integral relationship. It is whole, it is commune. There is a relationship between heaven and earth. There's a relationship between um, God and man. In fact, this is God's design. If you just go to Bible Gateway and try to find the number of times that heaven and hell are mentioned together in the same verse, you'll find zero. It was God's plan from the beginning to pair heaven and earth, not pit heaven versus hell. We talk about earth and then we talk about heaven and hell, but the Bible talks about heaven and earth. It was God's design from the beginning. Here's what happens after the creation that we have the fall. And what happens is hell invades earth. Sin invades earth. It, it, it tears the uh, relationship between heaven and earth. It tears the relationship between God and man. And hell is on earth. And this is actually a more uh, accurate picture. Hell's not an underground torture chamber. But there is this, uh, this, this power of hell on earth right now. It has never been clearer to me than when I uh, recently I went on a mission trip and I was in Rwanda and I went to the genocide museum in Rwanda. And there was this genocide in Rwanda where these uh, two different tribes, one just tried to annihilate the other. And as I'm walking through, my wife and I walk into this room, it was called the room of skulls. And it was just glass case upon glass case upon glass case of just human skulls of, of, of men and women who had been killed. I mean, skulls that had been beaten in with blunt objects and skulls that you could see where um, some type of ammunition had passed through. And it was just, it was, it was the picture of hell on earth. And then I thought, I can't, I can't handle any more. And the next room was the story of children. And I'll never forget, I'm looking at a picture of a three or four-year-old little girl and the story of how their neighbor who had babysit and helped watch this girl from the day she was born because of this genocide, because of hell on earth, this babysitter had come over and instead of watching and protecting this little girl, her family, the babysitter's family, just killed the entire family of the little girl, including the little girl, beat her to death. I remember reading a story in this genocide museum of this pastor who had ushered all these men and women into his church, locked the door, and because they were of different tribe, he called friends who brought bulldozers and bulldozed the entire church. Hell is, is all around us. Like when we think about sex trafficking, we think about abuse, when we think about all the murder and rape, hell is actively waging war against God's creation right now. But here's the beauty. Here's the beauty. God allowed sin to enter into the world, but he is not leaving it that way. Christ comes back in redemption. Christ comes to earth as a baby. The king comes to reclaim the territory that was his. It echoes this old hymn that my eyes have seen the coming of the glory of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fading lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. I have seen him in the watchfires of a hundred circling camps. They have builded him an altar in the evening dews and damps. I can read his righteous sentence by the dim and flaring lamps. His day is marching on. I have read the fiery gospel written burnished rows of steel. As he deal my contender, so my grace shall deal. I love this. Let the hero born of woman crush the serpent with his heel since God is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. King Jesus comes back to step on the, the serpent, to, to fight back the war of the enemy of Satan himself, and to take back the earth, which is his. God would allow us to choose sin, but God will not allow sin to win. And what happens in consummation is this. The heavens and the earth go back into the communion which God had originally designed them to be in. And there's a line drawn, and outside of the kingdom is hell. That hell is kicked out. 
And right now, we, 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 are, we are fighting in this chapter, in this war in which Christ is coming to redeem and hell is all around us. What the enemy would love for us as the church to believe is that, that the hell is simply an underground torture chamber. That we would strip hell of all of its power by just allowing it to be an underground torture chamber that we don't have to worry about until we die. But in reality, hell is an active war front in which you and I wake up on every single morning. It is not an underground torture chamber we have to deal with in the future. Every single day when we wake up, we are on the active war front of the kingdom of heaven and in the kingdom of hell. You and I, apart from Christ, carry the fire of rebellion in our hearts, the fire of hell in our tongues. You see, gossip is not just annoying. It's the breathing of hell into our offices. Complaining is not simply expressing the gap between what we expect and what we experience. Complaining is breeding hell into our own children. Pornography is not a victimless event, but the reality that you are taking part in the hell of sex trafficking and enslavement. Greed is not just an issue that we need to overcome. Greed is the reality of a hell-consuming power of all the resources that are needed to take care of the people around the world. Joshua Ryan Butler in his book, The Skeletons in God's Closet, says it this way. We are the ones, not God. We are the ones who unleash the destructive power of hell in our world. We are the ones that kill, rape, steal, enslave, and gossip, not God. It is our mistakes that unleash the power of hell in us. Now, I promise you this is not a hellfire and brimstone sermon. This is an emotional plea to our church and to our city to not try to simply sweep the power of hell under a rug but to wage war against the power of hell. We cannot simply act like hell is a made up place. It is the war front that we wake up every single day living on. The fourth thing about hell is this, it is both an act of justice and mercy. Hell is both an act of justice and mercy. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Justice is when you get what you deserve. Mercy is when you don't. For those in, in heaven, in the kingdom, looking at the reality of hell, it, you see the justice. Uh, we all can see it pretty easily. The justice of hell for those who are in the kingdom of heaven is that a city full of saints should be protected from evil. We say it this way. Why do bad things happen to good people? We have this assumption that bad things should not happen to good people. Now, we're going to deal with the good people part in a second, but let's just say every single person was good. You're correct. Bad things should not happen to them. It is justice that in the kingdom of heaven, a city full of saints, that evil is not allowed in. The mercy part of heaven for those who are in heaven is the fact that you and I, enemies and rebels of the kingdom, would ever be invited to lay down our arms and be invited to become saints in that kingdom. Now, for those in hell, the justice, giving the rebel what he or she deserves, that stings a little bit. But really what I think it is, is giving the rebel what he or she has longed for all of his or her life, the kingdom of self. I mean, that's what hell is. It's ultimately handing the kingdom of self over to the person who has longed for it and fought for the kingdom of self all their life. They deserve the kingdom of self. So the king of heaven says, it's yours. And it's far worse than the rule of Satan. It is a democracy in which everyone in hell has voted for themselves to be the king and everybody has won the election. It's a democracy of kingdoms of selves. We see it easily. We agree with it. We're okay with it. When, when men like Bin Laden and Hitler go to hell, they got what they deserve. They got what they longed for. That's the reality of hell. But the mercy, it's easy to look at heaven and go, I understand the mercy there, that, that evil can't come in. But how is there mercy in hell? Here's what a, a loving God does. He gives to those who fight for the kingdom of self. He gives to them their kingdom of self. But then he draws a line in the sand and says that the kingdom of self will not ever grow past this point. Evil knows no birth control. 
Evil will never cease to reproduce itself. It goes on and on and on. Evil never says, I've reached the limit. I feel good about how evil this is. Evil continuously reproduces. The physical limits of hell are a merciful gift of God declaring that hell shall grow no more beyond this point. God draws a line and he says, this is the moment in which evil cannot grow past. Only our human egos could object to this logic. Only our human, human egos. And the, re, the, reason that the, only, the reason we would object to this is that we still have a problem in seeing hell as a place of mercy because we've continued to root it in the caricature. We continue to think hell is locked from the outside, that God would shove everybody in and lock the door and throw away the key. But hell is not locked from the outside. It is latched from the inside. As I make this statement, I know that objection is coming. How can a loving God cause people to go to hell? For, for man to make this objection, we have to make several assumptions. The first assumption is this. The first is we are forced to assume that innocence is, is inherent to every man, and we just cannot assume that. And really in asking how can a loving God cause people to go to hell, we're really only asking how can a loving God cause good people to go to hell. Bad people, we're all good. We'll vote them in. People who try to cut us off in traffic, they can go there. But the reality is we're saying, how can someone who's good, how can God call someone who's good to go to hell? We are assuming innocence that can't be assumed. Righteous judgment is rooted in the righteousness of God, not the unrighteousness shared by all men. Every single human being has a blurred view of what righteousness is. We all, we all tend to think, every single one of us, including the worst of us in all humanity, tend to think that we are not sinners, but by whose scale are we judging? Our own scale. Romans chapter three says it this way, none is righteous, not even one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. What does that mean? No one is good. No one is good. Not, not one of us deserves the kingdom of heaven. Apart from the righteous sacrifice of the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, none of us are good. So God doesn't throw good people into hell. The second assumption is that God is throwing someone into hell to begin with. God, God, the second assumption is that God causes people to go to hell. Simply put, God does not cause our sinful nature. And therefore, God does not cause the consequences of that nature. God does not cause anyone to go to hell. God does not push or shove anyone into hell. We are, we are the cause of our own sin. We are the ones who choose hell. The reality is that we choose hell over and over and over again on our own. Pastor Tim Keller says it this way, hell then is the trajectory of a soul living in a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on and on forever. In short, hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into infinity. What does that mean? He's saying this. Hell is simply one's choice, one's ongoing over and over again, ongoing choice of their own identity apart from God in a trajectory into infinity. In other words, without God overthrowing our kingdom of self, hell is us clinging to our kingdom of self, saying this is my kingdom, this is my identity for all the days to come. In Revelation, the cities to the gate, uh, the gates to the city are never closed. God does not trick us and then close the door. The gates are wide open and yet no one from outside the city wants in. We cannot lie to ourselves thinking that those who have fought against the kingdom of heaven and for their own kingdoms for all of their life would all of a sudden choose to lay down their kingdom in eternity to submit, to submit and be subject to anyone else's kingdom even the kingdom of God. We have to forego this caricature of this dungeon of torture. It's the only way we'll be free to see that hell is outside of the city. It is a place of the kingdom protection, not a place of a sadistic God trying to find new ways to punish his people. Hell is a gift of protection to the saints. Any good king would desire to protect his people. God is just the only king who actually can protect his city. Jerusalem, this is, this is Zechariah says this, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as a village without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. 
And I will be to her a wall of fire around her, declares the Lord, and I will be glory in her midst. In other words, God says, I want Jerusalem to be so big we can't even build a wall around it and I will protect it. God is trying to overpopulate the kingdom of heaven to the point that he can't even get walls around it and he has to be the only point of protection. Hell is not a place that God created to torture sinners. It is a power God excludes to protect the robust vitality of his kingdom. The reality of hell should do three things in us. It should cause us to worship. The reality of hell should cause us to witness. And the reality of hell should cause us to wrestle. The reality of hell should cause us to worship. It should stir in us worship. If you begin to think about the kingdom of heaven being the fact that the king himself has provided and protected and created a place in which his children can be cared for and known and loved, and he's drawn a line so that evil can reproduce no more beyond this line, that he is a king worthy of our worship. In fact, I believe that when we begin to think about God holy and the more, to the more total we think about who God is, the more it draws us into deep and intimate worship. It should cause us to worship. It should cause us to witness that the reality of hell, the urgency of eternity should strengthen the witness in us. I mean, I'm talking about my prayer for us is that throughout this message that God would stir in us, the believers, the church, this desire that we can't even order a red Christmas cup from Starbucks without thinking about the reality of eternity and where the person handing us the coffee is going. That our friends and our family would, this stirring, this strengthening of witness in us, that the, the conversations at Thanksgiving would, would be different than they've ever been before because the urgency of eternity is real. And finally, the reality of hell should cause us to worship, it should cause us to witness, and it should cause us to wrestle. It should cause us to be sober-minded. It should cause us to sober up to the reality of the kingdom of self and its consequences. Charles Spurgeon, when getting ready to preach a sermon on hell, said these are such weighty things that while I dwell upon them, I feel far more inclined to sit down and weep than to stand up and speak to you. And this week, as I've been preparing this sermon, that, that sentiment has been heavy on my soul. That I would rather sit and weep that even in the declaration of a kingdom of heaven in which God himself declares that he wants it to be so big he can't even get walls around it that some would continue to cling to the, seed, the, the, the kingdom of self. There is no dual citizenship in eternity. You're either, the, you're either a part of the kingdom of the king or you're in the part of the kingdom of self. And my fear is that some will continue to cling to their sexual freedom, their financial security, their, their longing for comfort, their fighting for power, their kingdom of self, and they will never, ever let go of it. And for eternity, God will give them the exact thing they fought for their entire life. Here's the big idea. The same God who warns us so adamantly about hell is the same God that sent his only begotten son, Jesus, to bear our sins and save us from hell. The same God who throughout all scripture points to hell and says hell is real is the same God that points to his son Jesus and says, but there is a way in which you can enter into the kingdom of heaven. First Timothy chapter two says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our savior, who desires all people to be saved. Let me read that again. Desires all people to be saved, to come to the knowledge of truth. Jesus is both the most active voice on hell in the entire Bible and the saving voice saying, surrender, follow me, for I have come to save. Revelations ends this way in chapter 22. It's kind of the end of the whole Bible. It's these words. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Jesus referred to himself as living water, that he is the water that, that, that will quench everything. He's the only water that once we receive him, we have true life. Don't forget the verse we read earlier, chapter 22, verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Blessed are those who take off their filthy rags, lay them down, surrender their kingdom of self, and put on the righteous robes of Christ that they would have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Here's the reality. There are two kingdoms. 
Some will stand in the kingdom of heaven, clothed by the righteousness of Jesus, pointing to him, saying, I didn't get myself here. It's all because of what Christ did on the cross, the surrendering to what Christ did on the cross, and I will worship you forever and ever and ever all my days. And there are some who will stand outside of the kingdom, who will rebuke the kingdom, who will hate the kingdom's king, and all they have to cling to is the kingdom of self. We will either spend eternity clinging to the kingdom of self, kings of our own kingdom, forever cast out of the presence of a loving, true God, or we will surrender and be clinging to the king himself for eternity. There is no dual citizenship in heaven. It is either surrender and enter the king, kingdom by the righteous robes of Jesus Christ or continue to fight for the kingdom of self and for all of eternity, find, our, find yourselves outside of the presence of Jesus. Here's how we're gonna end. At all of our locations, if you'd bow your heads and close your eyes, I just wanna give you an invitation to surrender your kingdom of self, to surrender your wretchedness, to surrender your stain-filled clothes and put on the righteous robe of Christ. And if this at all of our locations, if right now, if you wanna surrender your life to Jesus, I invite you just to, Raise your hand in the air. Just to say, I admit I'm a sinner. I believe that Christ has come to rescue. And I lay down the kingdom of self and I put on the righteousness of Christ, not because I deserve it, but because he gives it to me. And I cling to the king himself. And if your hand's in the air, then all you do right now, the Romans says this, if you cry out to God, then you'll be saved. So in this moment, in a prayer, you just tell God, I surrender. I surrender to your kingdom. I surrender to you, the King. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for every hand that was raised and everyone who just walked from outside the kingdom into the kingdom and declared that you were King. And God, I pray for us that the truth of the gospel would stir us to worship, that the truth of the gospel would strengthen our resolve to witness and that would cause all of us, believers and, and unbelievers, to be of sober mind, and to wrestle with where the kingdom of self, we fight for it. And where the kingdom of self, we need to just surrender to the king of kings. Thank you for your mercy and your justice. It's in your precious and your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Church, would you stand with me? We're going to respond to the gospel. If the reality of hell should stir us to worship, then we are going to worship in Christ alone. If the reality of hell would strengthen our witness, we're gonna come in these moments and pray. The, the urgency of eternity is gonna cause us to come and pray by name for people that we're begging the Lord to call into his kingdom. This is a time if this is your home to give of your tithes and offerings. But let's let the reality of hell stir us to worship and strengthen our witness. Let's respond together.